opening our sermon this morning comes from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And the title of the sermon is God is Holy. This is the scripture. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Those of you who have been coming a while might wonder, why are we looking at this passage? Um, you recall that uh, before Christmas we were looking at the Gospel of Mark. Um, I'm going away in February, and I didn't want to pick up Mark again in the new year and then just drop it. So we're going to look at the end of Mark, the run-up to uh, the cross and the resurrection and our celebration of Easter in the Sundays before Easter, um, after I come back. In the meantime, uh, for the next three Sundays... I'm going to sh share with you some ideas, some theology. You know, we looked at, over the Christmas season, the nature of God, that God is a trinity, that is a divine community, a set of relationships. God is love, that God is Father, God is Son. Last Sunday, we looked at God as Holy Spirit. And these three, next three Sundays, including today, we're going to look at the classical attributes of God that we see in the Bible. God's holiness, God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything that is, everything that has happened, everything that will happen. And God's omnipotence, which we're going to look at next Sunday. The fact that all power belongs to God, the creator of all things. This Sunday, holiness... And this is uh, particularly personal for me. Um, what you're seeing here is the Isaiah's call. Isaiah is the greatest of the prophets. Uh, 66 chapters of Isaiah. The most quoted book in the Old Testament by the disciples and by Jesus. And beginning with an amazing call right here in Isaiah 6. When I was at seminary, we looked at this a lot because... Everyone at seminary is thinking about the call and what it means to be called by God. And so this is the most explicit and, and the richest example of that. And it's also the place where you 
get a picture of what it means to come into God's presence. What it means that God is your creator and you are his creature and the reality of coming face to face with your creator. So let's have a look at this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah was uh, an official in Uzziah, the king's court. And Uzziah was uh, he was an, kind of an odd king. He was very successful. He lived in a time of prosperity and peace. He did a lot of good things. But he became a king young. He was 16 years old. And um, he was a little prideful. He did a lot of good things. But it upset him there was one place in the kingdom that he could not go, and that was to the temple, to the Holy of Holies. And eventually, it got to the point where he said, I just don't care. I'm the king. I should go there. And he goes to the temple. Uh, The priests try to stop him. In fact, the Bible says 80 priests tried to stop him. But he didn't care. And he marches into the temple and into the the holy place to offer um, incense and sacrifice. And he's immediately struck with leprosy right there in his forehead, which is striking because... The forehead of the headdress of the priests was where they would have a signet stone which said, Holy to the Lord. The priests were the people set apart to serve God in the temple, to be holy. Even though he was the king, Uzziah pridefully tried to usurp their privilege, and the result was he became unclean, and in fact he died of leprosy. And notice, in the very year that the king dies, by defying God's holiness, that is when Isaiah, the prophet, begins his ministry, when he is called to ministry, and encounters the holy God. So this is a great passage to look at when you're thinking about what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean to be in relationship with a God that is holy? Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. There's a lot to be said about seraphim. I'm not going to say too much, just to note that they only appear here in the Bible. And the word seraphim, the name seraphim, literally means the burning ones, the ones who are holy themselves in God's presence burning with holiness, the personal attendance or the personal presence of God in the throne. They shine with God's glory and with God's holiness. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? Well, the first thing you need to know is that the Hebrew language, and this originally was written in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, there are no adverbs. Adverbs change verbs and nouns. They add 
meaning. And so if you want to say something in English, you would say, oh, that's beautiful, although that's good. If you wanted to stress the beauty or goodness, you would say that is very good, that is very beautiful, very intensifies the idea of goodness and beauty. But there's no such words in Hebrew. Hebrew was one of the earliest languages, in fact, the earliest uh, alphabet, and uh, it did not have all the rules of grammar that we have today. And so when in Hebrew you want to intensify something, you don't say very beautiful, you don't say very good, you, s you repeat the word. That is how you intensify it. So you say beautiful, beautiful, for very beautiful. Good, good, for very good. But notice, it's not just good, good, or beautiful, beautiful, or holy, holy. It is holy, holy, holy. It's the only place in the Bible, God's holiness, that is referred to in this way. It's not just good or very good. God is not just holy or very holy. He is maximally holy. He is the definition of holiness. In fact, holiness is an attribute of God. R.C. Sproul, uh, a Protestant theologian, puts it this way. The Bible says that God is holy. Holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy, or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. So what we're seeing here is language stretched to its limit to come to terms with the reality of God, to try to describe who God is. The word holiness literally means to be separate or set apart or be, be cut from. It's all about distinction. But like, as we saw last Sunday, the word spirit, it's very hard to define because usually when you define a word, you compare it to other words and say, this is what it means. But like spirit, holiness is an attribute of God. God is unique. There's nothing or no one else to compare him to. And there's no other place that you can point to and say, this is what holiness is like. Only God is holy. You can think of holiness as a sort of summary term for God's nature or his attributes or what theologians often call his perfections. That is his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his love, his omnipotence, his omniscience. God is holy and distinct and unique because he uniquely is complete and perfect in all these things. So holiness is who God is, and everything else is measured or is considered in relationship to God, to that nature, that perfection of God. And it's not a good comparison. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If you were here last Sunday, you might have heard me say when I was talking about the Holy Spirit, the one way to think about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit illuminates. Just as at night, uh, some famous uh, building or some famous ruin, sometimes you will see these shows where the building or the cathedral or the ruins or whatever it is, the pyramids, they shine lights on them in the darkness and suddenly these things pop out of the darkness and you can see them. The reason you can see them is because the light is shining. But you don't see the light. You see what the light is illuminating. That is what the Holy Spirit does in our life. It allows us to see God and the things of God. It allows us to see his truth and his beauty and his grace. It gives us spiritual eyes. The trouble is, although God is beautiful with spiritual eyes, we are revealed as unbeautiful. Woe to me, I am ruined. Spiritual eyes allow us to see all the ways that we are not holy. And that is a terrible thing to see. It helps to think of the opposite to holiness, to understand the concept. The opposite to holiness is sin. What is sin? Sin is literally missing the mark or missing the goal or missing in your aim. In archery, either you miss because you're not a good uh, archer or you're not paying attention or you miss your target. In fact, sin comes from a technical term associated with archery, to not hit what you're aiming for with an arrow. Now, if you miss a target and you're an archer, it's not such a bad problem. There are more arrows. There are other targets. There's another day. But if the Bible is true, then God is the creator of all things, including you. God is the center of all things, because all of creation depends on him. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. There is nothing without God. God is the reason for your life. And my life, in fact, God is the source of life, is life. God is the reason for everything that happens, every moment, every second, every day, every year. God is the reason and purpose and meaning of all things. So if you sin, if you miss him, that's a problem. If your life is not connected to the center of things, to the source of life, to the meaning and purpose of life, then your problem is catastrophic. In fact, this is the reason that Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Hell is the place where God is not. And if God is the center of things and the reason for things and the life of things, that's where you want to aim. 
It's why in the Old Testament repeatedly you hear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you don't base your life on the truth and reality and nature of God, then your life is not going to be lived wisely. If you don't have him as your center, if you put your, base your life and your decisions on anything else or anybody else, if you follow any other lead, if you aim for anything else, make anything or anybody else your goal, then your life is not going to work out. If it is true that this is God's world, then people who sin, who don't aim at him, are at odds with God's created world. It's like driving the wrong way down a freeway. You're going to clash. You're going to crash. You're going to burn. It's not going to work out. And it's not God like some school teacher or prison guard or judge sitting around waiting to punish people. Sin is living at odds with the world as it is. And that's why it's not going to work. And it's not that it's not going to work. It's that you can't be in a relationship. You can't deal with the reality of God's presence. Some of you have heard this illustration before. When I uh, went to college, um, the university I went to in, in Sussex in the south coast of England was famous for its physics lab. And as part of the physics lab, they had a laser building. And it was a complex of labs. And as you went in there, it's kind of scary. All the walls were black, and all the doors were black. And they had these big warnings, like lasers are being used here. If you went into certain rooms, you had to wear special glasses. And as I was led around, the whole group of us were led around to see it. You're kind of looking away from the doors in case it accidentally opens and something comes out and zaps you. And the, the student, he was a grad student taking us around, was explaining that in some of the experiments, there was so much power in these lasers that if there was even a fingerprint on the mirrors that they used on their light benches to split up the, uh, the beams, if there was even a fingerprint on, on one of the mirrors or one of the lenses or, or one of the splitters, just the oil in your fingerprint would absorb enough energy that the whole thing would explode. They had to keep things as pure and perfect, as clean as possible, so that the light would not make things blow up. I think that's a perfect illustration of a human being not ready for God. Sin the fact that we are at odds with God and his purposes makes us vulnerable, makes us liable to blow up and our lives blow up, makes God's presence dangerous to us. God's perfection demands perfection, and any lack of perfection, the slightest flaw, risks an explosion. It's the reason when you read the Old Testament, when you first read it, at least when I first read it, why is it so much about the holiness of Israel? 
Why is it all about how they eat and how they treat each other and how they obey the Lord? Every little detail of their life. Because it's all about creating a people who are not at odds with God. Who are able to witness him to the world without blowing up. The holiness of God's people requires that they are reoriented away from the things of this world to the things of God. And it's true in the church, and it's true for each of us. I was challenged, actually, um, just after Christmas, by somebody who didn't understand how I invited people to this table right here. And she was right. Typically, I say, if you see Christ here, you should come. And I'm pretty open, and I say, come to the table. And I think that's a good beginning position. But a lot of Christians, including many people in our denomination, insist that the table is fenced. You should warn people who come to this table, because this is where you meet God. And if you come to this table aligned with anything else apart from God, if you come face to face with the perfect holiness of God, you're going to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And therefore, you need to examine yourself, you need to have been baptized, and you come to the table only in faith of Christ. It's not for anybody who walks in. It's not, by the way, for small children who don't recognize Christ here. That's another aspect of fencing. Why? Because we take the idea of a holy God seriously. God's nature means that getting close to him is dangerous. Not because God is bad. Not because God is out to get us. Not because he's cruel, but because he's good and we are not. He is perfect and we are not. He is holy and we are not. Unless God intervenes. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So the seraphim are the holy ones, the ones who reflect God's glory and God's holiness. And notice, takes with tongues from the altar. The altar is the place before the throne of God in Israel in the tabernacle as it traveled, and in the temple at Jerusalem. The altar was where sacrifices for sin, all the ways that Israel was not holy, that's where they were made to allow Israel to be in relationship with God. Holy, holy, holy. And there's a powerful image here. A burning hole from that sacrificial altar is taken and applied Isaiah's lips. You know, you scarcely but flinch when you think of that image, a red hot coal being turned or touched 
to your lips. Fire and flesh, so incompatible, so deserving to be kept separate, you know. Lips of speaking and kissing and intimacy. Coals, burning coals for fire, for burning, for consuming. The coming together of holiness and unholiness, clean and unclean. And it should produce terrible pain and suffering. But Isaiah's lips don't burn. There's no pain, apparently. There is no suffering. So where is it? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Isaiah goes from, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, to here I am, send me. What changed? That burning coal from the altar. In the presence of God, holy, 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 and in the moment that that burning coal touched his lips, Isaiah saw something. Isaiah saw someone. And he began his ministry, and he never stops talking about the one that he saw for the rest of his life. 66 chapters. Here is Isaiah in chapter 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Going astray, not following the shepherd, seeking somebody or something else as your goal. That's the definition of sin. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all, like sheep, have sinned in our aim. Each of us has turned to our own way, the way that is not of God. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the Lord, through Christ, has found a way to restore us to relationship with him. Found a way to bring what is unholy together with what is holy. How did he do that? Through Jesus Christ, the Son, the Father's Son, who comes into the world, becomes one of us, takes up all our sin, all our waywardness, and puts it to death. 
He's the one who gets burned. He's the one who suffers. He's the one who bears the cost and the pain of our strain. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You could say sinful behavior. Because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We are unholy in our natures. All of us chase after different things in this world. But because of Christ taking our place, becoming one of us, when God looks at us, and this is God's decision, by the way, God sees the beauty of Christ's life and not the ugliness of our wayward lives. And that's why we can meet him. It is the only way that we can meet him. And so when we come to the table this morning, think about that. This is not your meal by right. You do not deserve this. However, by grace, Jesus Christ freely offers you this meal through himself. He paid the cost for it. And when you come to meet God at this table, the family table, God sees you in all the beauty of Jesus. God wants to be in relationship with you. God wants you to be filled with life. And as that becomes more of a reality, you become less and less at odds with him. More and more of you is aligned with him. More and more of you becomes beautiful. That's the Christian life. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel right there. That's the gift. Receive it this morning. Come to his table. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that though you are holy and perfect, you don't sneer at us. It is a miracle, Lord, that you can be in relationship with us at all, that you want to love us, that you want us to be part of your love. Lord, we thank you that though you are holy, you are also gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving and patient. You're willing to put up with us so that we might be with you forever. We thank you for that truth, that gospel good news, that miracle. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.